Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I am your host, Saskia Lille-Lehtsalo, from University of Tartu Asia Centre in Estonia, and here with me is Radita Dharmaputra, a junior research fellow in Johann Sutta Institute of Political Studies here in University of Tartu, as well as international relations lecturer in Erlanga University in Indonesia. Radityu's main topic of research is Russian foreign policy towards Asia, and he has written a few very interesting articles about the war in Ukraine and the Indonesian perspective specifically, so I would definitely recommend that you check them out. To start us off, so Radityu, what has been the general response to the war overall? Yes, so I think you have to distinguish between the governmental response and the societal response. So the government is a bit ambiguous, even now. In the beginning, they didn't condemn Russia for the invasion. They voted for the UN resolution, but then they abstained in the other resolution. And so you can see that they are trying to be as pragmatic, as ambiguous as they can be. But the society is a bit different. So you see that most people in Indonesia, especially in social media, tend to give sympathy towards the Russian position, Russian narrative. Some would even say that it's more pro-Russian than, let's say, pro-Ukrainian or even neutral. That's, I think, the basic idea. Even now, you can see the latest discussion on the Indonesian president's visit to Ukraine and Russia, which is clearly being viewed positively from the Indonesian perspective. But you can also see that outside of Indonesia, it's very different. (laughs) So I think you can see that at least until now, they are still exhibiting a very sympathetic position towards Russia. I think as we talked about before we started recording, the general feel in society is very maybe bizarre for us here. So where do this tendency towards uh, pro-Russian attitudes maybe come from? Yes, I think it is actually very common, especially outside the West. Mm-hmm. So you can compare it with the other countries in Southeast Asia, for example, in Malaysia, or you can compare it with China, India, the other countries in the so-called mm-hmm. Global South. It is a very pro-Russian or a sympathetic toward Russia. And I think most of the reason that they became like that is this idea or this perception of anti-Western mm-hmm. deeply embedded in the society. So you can see that the discussion about the war, people always talk about it as Russia against NATO, Russia Mm -hmm. against the US and the EU. I think Ukraine is absent from the discussion. So people always talk about this is the way to balance the world because usually Western countries are in control. They are not really pro-developing countries, something like that. And Indonesia is very specific, or at least quite similar to Malaysia, in terms of the way they see the West is always constructed around this idea of Islam and how the West also, or at least the US, have acted previously against uh, Muslim communities in Afghanistan, in Iraq. So you can always find this narrative, this discussion uh, around that topic. So anti-Westernism, the idea that the West has been you know, unfair to the Islamic communities around the world. So that's the the basic gist, I think, about what happened in Indonesia. 
in one of your articles, there was also a really interesting point about how Russia is kind of using this Muslim uh, question. Also in the war, there was something about showing propaganda videos, how they're using pig fat and the bullets. Or Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's very interesting. I think since 2014, after the annexation of Crimea, after the situation in eastern Ukraine, Russia started to use this public diplomacy in a more intense way, especially in the developing countries. Surely Indonesia is one of them. And then after 2016, after the Russian invasion of Syria, there was a lot of large demonstration in Indonesia from Islamic communities condemning Russia. Mm. And by that time, the Russian government, the embassy in Indonesia, even the Russian studies expert in Indonesia also realized that this is one thing that Russia has to deal with, with the baggage of the Soviet Union and communism as well. Indonesia has a long history of mm-hmm. anti-communism uh, since 1965. So they are trying to use this narrative of Russia as this Islamic ally, this land of Islam. As absurd as that would be for people from the West, if we see how Russia behaves in Chechnya or again Syria, for many Islamic communities in Indonesia, it is one thing that Russia is trying to repair their image using pictures, news about the large mass prayer in Russia, for example, the Islamic gathering in Russia, using, again, this kind of propaganda of using uh, the bullet that laced by the, I think, pig fat. Also, this idea of the Chechen leader, Ramzan Kadyrov, being very popular as well in Indonesia. Again, from an outsider point of view, that might be very absurd. But for Indonesian, especially Islamic communities, after 2016, they receive all those messages. And without any kind of counter-propaganda or counter-information from Western countries. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that is being used by the Russian embassy, by the Russian news media in Indonesia. Not really RT or Sputnik, but you have Russia Beyond the Headlines promoting this idea that Russia is friendly toward Islamic community, which is being received very good. Is Muslim friendliness uh, one of the main aspects of Russian soft power in Indonesia, or is there also some other things that they're using? There are other, but that's one thing that is touching the heart of the people. Mm-hmm. And it is very easy to use that, because then you can compare it with how the US, for example, support Israel against mm-hmm. Palestine. Mm-hmm. We know that Russia is also very close to the Israeli president, for example. Mm-hmm. Putin and former Israeli leader Benjamin Netanyahu is very close. Was very close, I don't know about now, but it is a very good relation between Russia and Israel. But that's not really a problem for Indonesia because the comparison is always the US. Mm-hmm. So the US, the West is always seen as uh, supporting Israel against Palestine. So that's also why, if you remember at the beginning of the war, there was a discussion, at least in Indonesia, the Ukrainian president Zelensky was seen as this, uh, he's Jew, he is a, close to Israel, mm. so that he must be against Palestine. And that is a very strong message. No matter how absurd that was, no matter how the Ukrainian embassy in Indonesia tried to disprove that or tried to counter that message, it is still very powerful, especially when for... Uh, now it's almost 20 years even, the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, of Iraq. That feeling of anti-U.S. and the feeling that Islam is being perceived as the enemy by the Western countries is always there. 
And now Russia is just basically touching upon it and trying to steer the pot, mm-hmm. if, to use another metaphor. Mm-hmm. It's always there, and Russia knows exactly where and what to do with that. Mm-hmm. Is that one of the reasons as well why Ukraine in this moment is kind of pushed aside when we talk about that Indonesia has supported Palestine, I think also Taiwan, India previously supported Taiwan. So the underdogs has been the ones who have been supported, but now with Ukraine, it's not really the case. Yeah, that's one thing that I have a debate with many of my colleagues in Indonesia, because Indonesian foreign policy, at least from the government position, is always supporting struggle of independence for smaller countries against aggression, against big power doing what they want. So that's why Indonesia supports Afghanistan. That's why Indonesia supports Iraq, uh, Palestine. Taiwan is a bit more sensitive mm. subject for Indonesian government because of Chinese presence mm-hmm. there. But it is always the idea also in the constitution and Indonesian foreign policy to support these smaller countries struggling for independence. It is there. But Ukraine is different. Ukraine, from Indonesian perspective, especially from the society, as I said before, the government is very ambiguous, trying to be in the middle, trying to balance Russia and the other countries from the West. But the society always sees Ukraine as part of NATO, part of the West, even though we know that Ukraine is not part of NATO. And even from the Western European perspective, maybe Ukraine is not even Europeans or Western Europe, at least. But from the Indonesian perspective, it is always seen as part of this Europe West. Not many people know about Ukraine. That's Mm -hmm. also true. Most people in Indonesia, if they speak about Eastern Europe, then it's always about Russia. Mm -hmm. So lack of knowledge about Ukraine, lack of knowledge about Eastern Europe in general, historic or nostalgic view of Russia as Soviet Union or Soviet Union at the time used to help Indonesia against Mm -hmm. the US, against the Dutch. So that's the idea that the Indonesian people have until this moment, I think. So it's very difficult to say to them that Ukraine is different. Ukraine has its own position, has its own perception. Because they always see this is part of the big game. It's not even important to talk about Ukraine because this is NATO and the West. Therefore, we must support Russia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yes. I think it's an interesting moment to maybe come to one of the questions I had before we started as well, is that Indonesia is the fourth largest country in the world for mm-hmm. population, mm-hmm. right? So how come are we talking about them not as the big power? So where does that come from? This like big power is Russia and China and US, but Indonesia, how do they feel in it? I don't think that even China is considered as big power now. Hmm. The history of Indonesian independence is important here. Indonesia was colonized by many Western countries. Mm-hmm. So it's the Dutch for 300 years, and then the British, Spanish, Portuguese. Yeah, I think that's all, yes. Mm-hmm. So a lot of Western powers at that time colonized Indonesia. So Indonesian perspective against the West is always there. After the independence in 1950s, 60s, you can imagine that's the height of the Cold War. Whatever happens with these newly independent countries, it should be a competition between the US and the Soviet Union at that time. So I think in the 50s, 60s, Indonesia asked for help from the Soviet Union, and they at that time helped Indonesia against the US. So that feeling of these two big powers, so only the US and Soviet Union or Russia, and then you have the 
European countries like the UK, France, Germany, all those big countries in the EU, part of this the West against, uh, let's say, the East or Soviet Union. But China only considered as great powers maybe now, in the last maybe five, ten years. Mm. But Indonesia is definitely not considered themselves as great power, maybe in the future. I think it's the fourth largest population in the world at the moment, behind China, India and the US. But it's economically still not as advanced as the other countries. So maybe only, I don't know the exact number, but now Indonesia is part of G20, so the top 20 countries in the world, but not even considered as the top 10, I would say. That's why people always see this issue of great power. This is always between the West and Russia. China is maybe now is considered being friendly with Russia, but it is still a very Cold War mentality with two big powers competing against each other. That's a very interesting view of the world as this bipolar kind of thing still. But it brings us nicely to the next big question I have for you with the G20 actually. Yeah, the yeah. G20 summit happening in autumn is that it seems at the moment, at least for me, uh, reading your articles and looking at uh, the general media response that Jokowi is kind of trying to maybe get more power to Indonesia in a sense or trying to like, heighten their foreign policy or leave his mark, let's say, on the foreign policy decisions of Indonesia and both inviting uh, Zelensky and Putin and kind of maybe putting himself in the role of the broker of peace kind of seems pretty big step, let's say, for a country that maybe doesn't see itself as a big power. What do you think about that? Is he taking more than he can chew? Yes. So I think the idea of inviting both Putin and Zelensky to the G20 summit in November is a very clever idea mm-hmm. of delaying or buying time. I think I, I say that in one of my articles. It basically trying to buy time. If you see the context two months ago, he invited both of them, I think in April or in May. It, it is still the hope that in the next few months, the war will end, that we will go back to solving the real problem from the Indonesian perspective. The real problem after the, the pandemic is post-pandemic recovery, a lot of mm-hmm. poor countries becoming poorer because of the pandemic. But it is clear now that it won't happen in the next few months, unless something miraculous happened. So I think the Indonesian government came to the conclusion that it won't happen, uh, that the war will still be there during the G20 meeting. So they're trying to, part of it is uh, the president's legacy, trying to leave his mark in Indonesian foreign policy or Indonesian political scene in general. He's not really known as a global leader. He wasn't really active in foreign policy scene, at least in his first term. His second term since 2019, he tried, but Indonesia can do much more. That's basically the idea that Indonesia can do much more in foreign policy. But he was concentrated in domestic politics. His image is based on his domestic legacy. So he tried to be the same, at least same height with his predecessor, if not the the first president of Indonesia, who was known as this global leader, the non-aligned movement. So he tried to reach that position as well. Whether it is plausible or not to be this peace broker between Russia and Ukraine, I doubt it. It's very difficult. Again, Indonesia doesn't have that much stake, that much experience in mediating conflict in Europe or Eastern Europe. I don't think anyone maybe has the experience, but you have Turkey, 
trying very hard now. Israel also try hard. France and Germany, of course, uh, had more experience here. Indonesia's experience is always either Southeast Asian context or maybe uh, mostly majority countries, so or is Islamic countries. Mm-hmm. Trying to contribute to that is easier because Indonesia had the experience. But with the case of Ukraine and Russia, it is very difficult. Even if the president is genuine and idealistic in saying that, oh, I'm trying to be a peace broker, you can always see that that can also be used to enhance his domestic legacy. So you can read the domestic discussion about his visit to Kiev and Moscow. Maybe, again, it was a very important visit. The first Asian leader to visit Kiev, for example, bringing his wife. That's also something that symbolically is very powerful. But in terms of real progress, you can see that it is basically just the same. Russia keeps attacking Ukraine. Not much progress about the grain situation, about the food crisis. Now Turkey is even more active in that. So the narrative in Indonesia changed from helping Ukraine into being a our president as a peace broker, as a global leader, which is very interesting. And you can see the discussion of him being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. That's, that's something absurd. Again, even from Indonesian perspective, what did he gain? But now it's very difficult even to criticize that visit because most media analysts appreciate the visit, mm-hmm. which... I agree it should be appreciated, but to be more critical about the visit itself is very difficult to do in Indonesia at the moment, because then you enter this polarized situation. Now it's no longer about Ukraine. It's about Indonesia and about the president, a very sensitive subject since the last two elections, which polarized Indonesia. I think it's the same in many countries in the world as well. The latest, maybe 10 years, was a very polarizing situation. You have the supporter of the president against his opponent and Indonesian society was polarized. Now trying to criticize the president's visit is seen as you are being part of the anti anti Jokowi or this anti president group, which is not true because again, you can always appreciate what he did, but you can also give some critical feedback. If he wants to be a peace broker, then he must do more than just visit it once, for example. Mm-hmm. That's a simple one, but yeah. I think it's also very interesting to show how proud people are of him, that there's been a lot of talks about the Nobel Peace Prize, how yes. he should get it because of brokering. That's a very interesting turn of events, I think. Yeah, and it is very difficult because then if you're being critical, you are seen as not nationalistic enough, mm-hmm. not patriotic enough, mm-hmm. then you are seen as too critical to the president who was trying to at least contribute something. Mm -hmm. And then it became a very basic populism (laughs) one-on-one that it is part of his way to control people, part of his appeal to the public, his way of doing things differently from the other leaders. And the way that he brought his wife to Kiev, I think he visited the hospital. Again, it was seen as, at least from the Indonesian perspective, not from the West, probably. From the Indonesian perspective, it was seen as, oh, he's doing more than all the other Western leaders. Of course, it's not true. We know what happened. A lot of Western leaders already visited Kiev before. But I think the importance of bringing his wife, that's also very symbolic. Mm-hmm. I would say he was very clever. He is still a master in doing this kind of symbolic politics. Mm-hmm. Again, enhancing his... 
appeal as a very down-to-earth person meeting regular people on the street. That's basically his strength in the last two elections. Mm-hmm. After this, he cannot run again for office in two years. So he need to have some legacy. And this is, even if he couldn't make it his foreign policy legacy, he already had domestic legacy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think the domestic thing, it might be something that we can finish off with. So yeah. maybe one last question about maybe the future and domestic situation a bit as well, and with society level again. I understand that the attitudes are mostly pro-Russian, but as you brought out as well that the food question is becoming a thing. And as we know, because of uh, Indonesia is one of the largest importers of Ukrainian wheat. And with the production of instant noodles, the supply chains are becoming broken because of the wheat shortage. So would this food aspect be something that affects the domestic attitudes as well? Or would that be, again, seen as more maybe anti-Western thing that the war is happening and this is because of the West that we have this kind of shortage? In the end, it's a very basic situation of food and the ability to eat every day. I think most people have this conception of Indonesia, especially in Southeast Asian countries, eating rice more than wheat or noodle. But Indonesia is very specific in its instant noodle brand, which Mm. is very popular in Indonesia. I don't know about the the other countries in the West or even in Southeast Asia, but most people, because it's very cheap, it was very cheap, very easy to eat, to cook as well. So people depend on that. And it's already rising, the prices. Not to mention the other rising prices of gas, of oil. And of course, because of that, then you have palm oil as well. So you have a many potential for domestic crisis. At the same time, we're still in a post-pandemic situation, trying to recover the economy. So I think the government already said that it would be a very difficult year, especially with the war. Not even after the pandemic, we are still in the pandemic. So you have very difficult situation coming up. And I think the way the government portrayed the situation, at least some minister trying to say that this is Ukraine's fault. Mm. Sunflower oil, for example, Mm. causing the rising palm oil prices or something like that. So the situation with how the Indonesian ministers portraying the current situation is very disturbing. Some of them are trying to say that this is a Ukraine's fault, that Ukraine and Russia had to achieve a compromise because otherwise the world will suffer. And this is, I think, a very difficult situation, even for the Ukrainians, not to mention the Russian, but just the Ukraine, because this demand from the other countries that they solve this problem, the problem they didn't make, the problem that was caused by the Russian invasion. But now the question is about whether Ukraine will do something, which is not fair. But that's how the Indonesian government, at least some of the ministers, try to use this situation to blame other parties and not the government, not the president, definitely. So that's one way to do it. The other way is to blame the West. And of course, blame in essence, it's blaming Ukraine again for what is happening now. I think some of them are trying to do that. Experts already say that maybe we shouldn't invite Russia to the summit in November, trying to solve it without the presence of Russia, because this is a very urgent issue that needs to be solved. And Russia's presence or Putin's presence there might affect the outcome or might even prevent some Western leaders from coming. But there is, I think, a discussion now that Putin might not attend Mm. the summit. If you follow the news with Sergei Lavrov leaving early 
from the meeting because he felt that he wasn't respected, that people wasn't there during the dinner. And then he just skipped the official dinner, returned to Russia. It might be the same when if Putin attended. So that's another question. Now, I think they're very, those who organize the G20 from the Indonesian side, they're trying to think what to do if Putin attended. And then for some reason, somehow Zelensky can also attend. <laughs> what to do with that? They have no experience in doing that. So they're asking a lot of people what to do if that situation occur in November. But at the moment, I think the government are trying to, if not blaming other countries, blaming outside forces, trying to deflect the situation from the internal situation, from the governmental fault. Again, if you follow the Indonesian domestic politics, there is this discussion and the Minister of Trade was replaced. Last month, he was replaced by someone else because he couldn't control the palm oil mafia. But now it is, again, very difficult to control the price. And now the government are blaming, oh, because Ukraine now selling its sunflower oil again. Now our oil, our palm oil becoming more expensive, which is, again, it's not really Ukraine's fault, but it's a situation. Again, domestic politics, domestic legacy is more important for the government, even though the president cannot be elected again, but we don't know what will happen in the next few years. New parties, new coalitions. So this year and the next is a very important year for Indonesia, preparing for another election. And I think he wants to go out looking good uh, with his legacy, especially domestic one. And this war is something that he basically he could do anything about it. So it is very frustrating for him, I would say. All his plan, especially with G20s, had to be changed from. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you, Radito. I think it's been a Thank very you. interesting overview. And I'm sure we're going to hopefully be reading more about your short overviews as well, about the situation as it continues on. And definitely tune in for the G20 in November and see what actually happens as well. And thank you to the listeners. I have been your host Saskili Lehtsalo from University of Tartu Asia Centre in Estonia. And discussing with me the Indonesian response to the war in Ukraine was Radito Dharmaputra, a junior research fellow in Johannesburg Institute of Political Studies here in University of Tartu and international relations lecturer in Erlanga University of Indonesia. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.